This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on streaming services and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give love to the work of a lead or supporting actor. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network. On today's episode of Lens Me Your Ears, we watch the new movie from British director Edgar Wright, Last Night in Soho, and we weigh in on the many movies he says inspired this new work. We're looking at British dramas and Italian horrors from the 1960s. Coming up... Well, welcome back to another edition of Lens Mirrors. Great to be back with you here, Carson, on a beautiful, sunny Sunday morning at CKDU's production studio and uh, talking about a film that uh, I got a lot of fun out of because it just touched so many sweet spots in terms of pop culture and genre and uh, just uh, enjoying the work of Edgar Wright. And that, of course, is Last Night in Soho, his long-awaited, it's been sitting on the shelf for a little while and we're glad it's finally out in theaters. Um, Last Night in Soho, a thriller, uh, not a comedy, uh, as he is normally his want, um, but uh, dipping into some of the same cultural and uh, filmmaking pools that he's drawn on in the past, but for entirely different dramatic ends. And uh, it was still a lot of fun. It was a, a nice homage to uh, the 60s and the filmmaking in England and Europe of that time, but also uh, also a fun uh you know, character study for today. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I really enjoyed this film. I mean, I, I didn't think it was a perfect film. I have a few like niggling issues, but for the most part, I really enjoy Edgar Wright's direction and the fact that, you know, he's watched, I feel like he's kind of a peer, you know, we are roughly the same age and he's watched a lot of the same movies that I've watched and has a lot of the same interests. And uh, he, now what he did was after he, you know, helped promoting this film, he talked about, a list of 25 films that he tagged as genuine influences on this new movie. And he shared that list with IndieWire, the uh, online website, uh, film website. Um, Of course, you know, right off the top, he talked about the new wave, British new wave dramas of the 1960s, and he talked about giallo horror, Argento, Bava, that kind of thing. This is what he had to say. These, and this this is quoted in IndieWire, These are 25 films from the 1960s that either somewhat inspired the seed of the idea for Last Night in Soho or that I watched during the development and writing of the movie. They cover dramas, horrors, psychological thrillers, and some documentaries, faked or otherwise, that I watched or rewatched as to immerse myself in the period of the time. Believe it or not, this is still an incomplete list as I watched many, many more, but these 25 films comprise some that I shared with the cast and crew if they needed any further inspiration beyond the script in terms of color, costume, and hair, performance style, or just the glorious time capsule photography of London as it was back then. Now, of course, we cannot fit in all 25 <laughs> movies no. into our hour here on Lens Mirror Ears, but there are some we've already talked about over the six-year history 
history of this podcast. We've spoken about Peeping Tom, The Innocents, Blow Up, and Poor Cow in a number of our different episodes going back. We talked about London movies. We talked about uh, movies from 1969. We've talked about movies, you know, uh, and, and anyone can go back and watch or listen to those episodes, uh, mo- you know. But I think I think we both have a soft spot for you know, Anglophiles, I think is fair to say. So this is right up our alley. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things. You, know, you grew up in Canada in the 70s and uh, you know there was still like that heavy reliance on british tv programming along with the canadian shows and and so i you know i grew up with this very kind of cross atlantic <laughs> feeling about childhood you know like watching uh shows based on those old enid blyton mystery novels you know the famous 5 and that kind of thing and kids solving mysteries and in quaint little British towns and fighting smugglers and that kind of thing. And, <laughs> yeah, and, sure. And, 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 you know, the magic roundabout and Simon and the Land of Choctaws and so on. So, you know, and, and then eventually, you know, discovering Doctor Who and Monty Python and, and stuff like that through um, either Canadian or, or um, cable uh, channels at that time. So I feel like, and then of course, just getting into the Beatles and the Kinks and the Who and, and, and the music of that period and then punk rock in the seventies and so on. So I, you know, it was just one of those things where it was so tied to, uh, you know, whatever cultural upbringing I had that, uh, that anything that stands in that sphere is usually going to be of some interest on, on some scale. Yeah, and for me, uh, it was high school in the UK. I was fortunate enough to be uh, attend high school uh, 10, 11, and 12 in London. So I really immersed myself in the London culture. And a lot of that, still the, the echoes of the 60s were still a big part of life in the 80s, certainly in the music and, uh, and, and films. And yeah, and so this all seemed very familiar to go back and watch. Now we watched, I guess of the list, we watched uh, seven or eight. Hopefully we can squeeze them all in, give them all a little bit of uh, attention here. But we're going to start with Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson Cairns' uh, Last Night in Soho, which is about Thomas and Mackenzie plays Eloise. She's raised by her grandmother after her mother has committed suicide when Ellie was a little girl. She's fascinated by 60s fashion and music, and she's accepted into a London college, a fashion college, and travels from her home in rural Cornwall to attend school. Ellie still sees her mother sort of in mirrors, like she feels the presence of her mother. So that specter of of supernatural energy or potential mental illness haunts last night in Soho. Um, And Ellie is tough. She's self-sufficient. And when the mean girls in her new school give her trouble, including a, a, a really nasty roomie, she moves into her own bedsit off Goodge Street, just north of Soho. Uh, and in her final role, the legendary Diana Rigg appears as her landlady, Ms. Collins. Uh, Ellie gets a job at a pub. And uh, she attracts the interest of an older man, played by Terrence Stamp, in great form, and a boy in her class, played by uh, Michael Ajo, uh, or I should say Ajeo, uh, pardon my pronunciation. So, right Soho here is a warren of moody corners, a draped in reds and blues, an urban space of dark alleys under neon flash, and of course, all soundtracked to an exquisite selection of mid-60s English pop. Now, what happens is that Ellie has dreams, and in dreams, she is back in the 1960s, and she's sort of uh, embodied by uh, in, inside a girl named Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. She's a singer who wants to make a go of it in London nightclubs. She's confident and extroverted, but 
Shy Ellie seems to be both sort of part of Sandy and outside watching her, sort of like haunting her in a weird way. And uh, the glamour of her life and her spirit is immediately appealing to to Ellie. But uh, and it looks like Sandy's going to get her big break with Jack, played by Matt Smith. And then things start to shift. And I won't say any more than that. But that's basically the (laughs) setup. That's the setup. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it is interesting how the the film goes from this like fish out of water story you know ellie trying to find her way through modern london and connect with the parts of london and the soho that she really believes the sort of spirit of the adventuresomeness and the the wonder and and progressiveness in a way and then gets gets sort of stuck in the in the the parts of that are a lot more sleazy and and uh and where people are exploited and that i feel like that's the shift there that emotional shift which i really felt yeah, I, I really uh, felt for the this interesting combination of two female leads who are kind of psychically intertwined. Uh, I mean, we don't know if Sandy is real or not in terms of did she actually exist? Is she in uh, Eloise's imagination? What's going on? And, and just kind of waiting for the story to kind of unfold is, is a lot of the sort of the pleasure in terms of the enjoying the storyline. And, uh, you know, I, I really liked... Uh, you know the the juxtaposition of of those two characters um, and the way they go, kind of go back and forth through the mirror images and everything like that. And uh, I think that uh, I think that Wright found a really good partner in Christy Wilson Cairns. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's interesting to see him team up with a, a new writer for the first time. Uh, prior to this, she worked on the screenplay for 1917 and uh, also uh, a terrific sort of supernatural monster movie uh, homage. Um, that is Penny Dreadful with one of our favorites, Eva Green, uh, in a key role in that TV series. So uh, she's got a foot in, in kind of horror and also kind of British, I won't say nostalgia, but kind of a historical British drama. So that seems like a good combo to kind of bring this story to life. And uh, uh, you, you mentioned that she finds a place off of Good Street, and uh, that's you know that's a very 60s location because, as uh, I think I told you way back when, when we saw the movie that good street there's a song by donovan called sunny good street so it's which oddly enough does not show up in the song maybe that's a little too on the nose to actually use it in the movie but it's interesting that it is you know a, a street that has some notoriety in 60s pop culture that is interesting i didn't know that um but i did recognize it from having walked up totten court road right. in the past and knowing it's not actually in soho but it's a little further north in fitzrovia and uh it's certainly part of the overall same neighborhood like it would be a 10 minute walk down to soho from there so it makes total sense that that would be a good spot um yeah i mean a lot of the pleasure for me was identifying all those locations some of which i knew right away some of which i sort of had to think now have i been there you know is what's changed what's the same uh, and uh, I I really <clears throat> I really love the performances I love the way the film is made there's a lot of confidence of course in Wright's uh, camera work and his storytelling as a visual artist uh, I did want I felt like I wanted more time in Sandy's world she remains a little bit opaque to us like uh, some of her details which maybe speaks to the fact that we're seeing her through Ellie's dreams so it makes you wonder: Is yeah, as you say, is she real? Is she just a, fra- a fragment, a figment of uh, of Ellie's dreamscape? Um, and I mean, I am much more a fan of the British 
drama than I am of the Italian horror. And uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm cool with that. Like, I thought that the <laughs> visuals were really impressive, and I definitely felt the, the terror growing as we go along. Uh, you know, this film sort of corkscrews into Baroque, uh, you know, Italian-style horror in a way that is is impressive to see. Uh, I just, I guess I just wanted a little bit more from, from the, the 60s era. And, uh, uh, you know, but... I still have plenty of time for where it goes and how it wraps up in the end, too. I, uh, I, I really got the sense of the passion of the filmmakers for this material. And I really like that Wright, as you say, is, is teaming up with a different writer and, and going outside maybe his initial comfort zone in terms of the kind of work he's done before. Yeah, I, I, I get what you mean about wanting to spend more time in the 60s. I guess that's the dilemma of having it be this dreamscape where it's a combination of you know, spirits that have existed and also, you know, Eloise's kind of dream imagining of of what the 60s were like. Because as we meet her, she's obsessed with her grandmother's old records. And her grandmother's played by Rita Tushingham, who I'll use the word iconic British 60s actor. She's in some amazing films. A Taste of Honey is one of the key, you know, certainly one of the top five kitchen sink dramas of that early 60s British um you know, working class uh, drama genre. And that's on Wright's list as well. Which is on his list. Uh, She's she's also in a film that wasn't on his list, which maybe should have been called Smashing Time, where she and Lynn Redgrave play a couple of girls uh, from a small town who come to London to seek their fortune, I guess. And they wind up becoming pop celebrities because they get picked to record this pop song i don't know i can't remember all the machinations that get them into a recording studio but they record this song called we're so young that makes them these instant uh kind of pop idols out of nowhere and then the adventures kind of continue from there it's it's a comedy it's it gets a bit slapsticky uh at times but uh but she is great in it and you know, if you've only seen her in like super serious drama i think she's also in dr Zhivago. um you know it's it's interesting to see her and and uh and red lynn redgrave in a uh, in a comedy but um Anyway, she's obsessed with those records, so she's got, she packs up all of her grandmother's records, the Kinks, uh, Walker Brothers. Uh, I'm trying to think what else was in there. There was like I was just kind of drooling over the old vinyl that she was throwing into her suitcase. Um, Scylla Black and Sandy Shaw and so on. And um, so you have that romanticized thing that's clashing with uh, what may or may not be uh, real events that prove that showbiz is in England in the 60s was just as sleazy as it was in Hollywood as been depicted in many other, uh, you know, other um, films and shows and so on. So, uh, you know, I love that that rocking horse, uh, that seesaw balance between one and the other and, you know, the glamour and the kind of, you scrape away the glitter and you see the kind of filth underneath. And, and uh, I guess I guess it's hard to say how much of one they should have in terms in favor of the other, but uh, I, I think they got a pretty good balance. Yeah, I did. I, I found it very entertaining. And it's funny you mentioned Scylla Black. She was someone who I knew as a high schooler. She was a host, a TV host. By the time the 80s rolled around, she hosted uh, Blind Date, like like dating shows on TV. But I, I, I didn't realize what a sensation she was as a singer back in the day. Of course, some of her music is featured in Last Night in Soho. Well, she was also managed by Brian Epstein. So, you know, she certainly got the same push that the, the Beatles did. I think she was also from Liverpool. Don't quote me on that. But, uh, you know, certainly she, you know, she was on Parlophone, same, you know, same labels, the Beatles. Um, the Beatles wrote songs. You know, Lennon and McCartney wrote songs for her. Uh, there's one called Step Inside Love, which 
I don't think the Beatles ever did, except maybe on the BBC or something like that. So, you know, she, she definitely was, uh, the topper most of the popper most. <laughs> I've heard, uh, I think, I think I heard John Lennon use that phrase at one point in, in an interview back then, but, but her and, and, and Sandy Shaw, you know, were part of that realm of, of British pop divas, you know, the dusty Springfield, just these amazing voices. Uh, who's uh a lot of whose uh, music has uh sort of been underheard in recent years and i'm glad uh, the movie brings a lot of that back too yeah and you know um we should talk a little bit about one of the movies yes. that uh edgar wright chose amongst his 25 and that is uh, speaking of sort of youth culture and music and all of that uh, it's beat girl from 1960 this is probably the i think the earliest one that we looked at it's also known as wild for kicks as it i think was released maybe in the in, I the, think US. in the u.s yeah yeah Directed by Edmund T. Greville and written by Dale Ambler. And it's about a, uh, a teenager, played by actual teenager, uh, which, is, which is nice to see. Uh, it starts in this household of this wealthy London architect, Paul Linden, uh, who is maybe in his 40s or early 50s. He brings home a 20-something French bride, his new wife, Nicole, much to disgust of his hip art school teenager, Jennifer. And she, Jennifer sneaks out at night to party with her friends who are a mix of rockers and beatniks who like to hang out in coffee bars and dance to the very jazzy John Barry theme and play Elvis-inflected tunes and smoke. Hopeless and soapless is what one of her straighter <laughs> classmates describes them as. The slang, I love the slang, you know. He sends me over and out, man, is like some of, the, some of, those, some of that slang. Um... This is actually a, isn't just like a teen exploitation film. I was surprised how much of the plot of Beat Girl is around the adults and the architect's dream of a of City 2000, a collection of towering like Toronto City Hall esque tower blocks that look terrible. <laughs> That's exactly what they look like. It was <laughs> kind of kind of weird flashback to that. Yeah, yeah, scary. And then um, you know, it, it's it's fairly complex. Um, and it it turns out that uh, that Nicole, the new bride, she knew uh, Greta, who is a, a London exotic dancer, and of course Jennifer starts to invest. Investigate Nicole's backstory because she hates her new stepmother. And then Christopher Lee shows up as a manager of a strip club. Uh, yeah, so it's a really interesting film. Uh, and as I mentioned, the actor playing Jennifer, uh, Jillian Hills, is 14 in the, uh, when she made the film. Which, And she's so self-possessed. I mean, it's a spectacular uh, a role for her. And, uh, and I mean, all about the generation gap, we see a young Oliver Reed, Shirley Ann Field, and Adam Faith, all sort of stars of the era show up here. So, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy the film. Yeah, it's 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 basically like a UK rebel without a cause in a way. <laughs> With uh, We even get a chicken ride, uh, like a chicken run uh, type uh, car race towards the end of the, the film. And, and uh, Jillian Hills, uh, I don't know if she had any experience prior to this? She's very appealing. She pouts a lot, and she has this kind of Bridget Bardot kind of um, kind of appeal, and, and and maybe that's why they picked her because there's a bit of a physical resemblance to Bardot, who was you know super popular at the time. Um, in 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 you know as much for her sort of private life as for her movies, and uh, it's uh, it's just it's just wild. It just it's just full of slang. There's there's never a dull moment in this film. It's just a trying to do something outrageous or 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 you know hip and trendy and so some of it you know is fun in its datedness and some of it is actually fairly audacious uh and and it's 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 all quite enjoyable and, and Edmund Greville who who directed it I mean this is a guy he's a 
French director. He's at the end of his career. He started at the dawn of sound in like the you know 1930 or so, and here he is making this youth culture film. You know, at the end of his career, 1959. You know, almost 30 years later, and and somehow was able to pull off this very appealing, you know, fast paced uh, kind of thing. And it, even though there's kind of that weird clash between kind of beatnik culture and rock and roll culture, and it's sort of pretends they're the same thing, which isn't. Uh, I don't think was really the case, but uh, you know, what, whatever works, I guess. And you know, they're both kind of adopted from American subgenres, so I guess uh, you know, the, the British kids just kind of latched on to whatever seemed cool and you know, American at that time. And uh, it's just a, a really interesting mix of, of of kind of subcultures all coming together. And and then you get that uh, as in uh, last night in Soho, you get that youth culture meets Soho showbiz sleaze kind of. Um, kind of collide collision and and how the two kind of intermingle and and clash at the same time and uh it's it's really interesting to watch this after seeing last night in soho and 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 uh how much some of that world was kind of borrowed for the for the newer film yeah it clearly was in the the culture conversation at the time yes. uh and you know people were had eyes open about what soho was about and uh and what london was about and uh it's funny about the youth culture it's weird to me that they don't like to drink they make fun of a boy who sneaks a, a bottle of alcohol into the cafe with him like alcohol was uncool um but they did like to smoke things i guess uh though i don't know if if marijuana is actually addressed uh in the film i can't remember i don't think so i don't think so i think that'd be a bit too outre yeah for, for yeah. this film but they do. I did enjoy how the youth talk about being kids during the war and living as children of war veterans and how disconnected they feel from all of that and how tired they are of their parents going on and on about it. Um, yeah, that uh, that sounded sounded pretty authentic to me. And uh, and but mostly I really like the thriller and mystery elements aside from the youth culture, the relationship between a woman in her 20s, the French woman who is who's seen a bit of life and then the spoiled conniving teenager. I thought they did that really well. And it's it's Christopher Lee is fun in his bit part is, is kind of like this film's version of Matt Smith's Jack, the kind of showbiz pimp in last night in soho christopher lee of course just it's so distinctive even at this uh, early stage of his career uh you know you kind of wish that maybe there's a bit more of him in this film too but uh and oliver reed for that matter <laughs> his plaid shirt as he's credited <laughs> um you know but it's it's great to see them at such an early uh, early stage And here we are here on Lens Mirror Ears talking about films from the 1960s, British and Italian films, having watched Last Night in Soho. And these are all films recommended by the director Edgar Wright. And uh, to start this segment, we're going to discuss a film that might be hard to find, but we were able to track down. That's The Frightened City from 1961. Well, I guess we're going chronologically in our list. There's a whole bunch of them coming up from 1965, but we're, this is from 1961. It's directed by John Lamont and uh, co-written by John Lamont and Lee Vance. And it is a gritty crime drama set in London nightlife, where bars and nightclubs pay protection to extortionists. Uh, we first meet the cops, and then we meet Herbert Lom as a clever money man who sees an opportunity to expand the protection game and build a syndicate with the help of uh, Alfred Marx's silver-tongued organizer. And then Sean Connery steps in. He plays a character named Patty. Uh, he comes into the story as muscle to help collect the protection money and keep things working, expanding the racket. But his motivation is to sort of help his disabled buddy, who he feels 
uh, he owes a debt, though uh, Patty takes to the work pretty quickly, and and the his his reasoning for for getting into this line of work uh, kind of slips to the side a little bit. Basically, he seems to be really good at it. So I feel like Connery's star power is evident right away. I mean, he had been in a couple of things before this, but you know, it's it's clear that you know in a year he'd be James Bond, and uh, you know you can see it. He's tall, he's good looking, and he has a suave way about him. Um, you know, Mister Kiss. Kiss, bang, bang, indeed. <laughs> uh, we also, uh, John Gregson as dis- Detective Inspector Sayers, who uh, in his own way is as pushy and tough as the gangsters. Um, also really liked Yvonne Romaine as Anya. She's an Algerian-Russian emigre who can sing and play piano, which brings in that showbiz kind of quality. At first, she looks like she's going to be Herbert Lom's lady, but... You know, he turns out to be kind of just her mentor, and it's an interesting kind of love triangle with Patty, who gets interested in Anya, uh, but he already seems to have a girlfriend. Like, there's all these different kind of character notes here that I think really bring a lot to this film. Uh, what did you make of it, Stephen? I really like this film. It's one I've been wanting to see for a while, just because it's on Connery's uh, filmography. It's an early starring role for him. Uh, and, you know, I'm interested in that period of his career before his you know, persona or what have you was really well defined, but it's, it seems like, uh, the character he's playing here is, is almost like a direct lead into what he would become in, in the Bond movies. There's a physicality to his performance here. You know, he's, he's working out at a gym and, and there's a fight scene towards the end where you can tell it's him doing most of the work in that fight scene. And he, you know, he was, he was, um, you know, I think he was a bodybuilder around this time as well. So he does have that, that physicality that would uh, be a big part of, uh, those early James Bond films before, um, it's just, uh, you know, toupees and stuntmen, uh, all the time. But, um, you know, beyond, beyond that curiosity, I, I did enjoy that kind of crime milieu that is portrayed here. I like the, I always like the stories about gangsters trying to modernize their business model and uh, try and get with the times. I mean, you know, it's obviously it's a big part of the Godfather uh, trilogy, but here we see the same story kind of played out, um, you know, much, much earlier. And I, I just really like that idea of, of how organized crime tries to get more organized, you know, where some of the thugs just want to keep doing the penny ante protection rackets and, um, and some of the, the some of the brighter guys have loftier goals that when you look at they seem pretty preposterous that they're going to go after big corporations and try and shake them down instead of uh, corner store merchants or or what have you and and uh, but but even so it, it seems like uh, it seems like a, an interesting um, portrayal of different tiers just within the crime world uh, and I like that aspect of it and how uh, Connery kind of sees himself as being a bit above it, but then gets completely mired down in it as, as the movie goes on. And it's, and it's got some great, uh, you know, got some great British noir, um, touches throughout the film, which is also something to be enjoyed. It, it's something that, uh, I mean, we think of film noir and we think of it primarily as, as American or a lot of people do. And, and yet there was a string of really great street level crime pictures made in England in throughout the fifties, Brighton rock comes to mind. Um, there's a number of other ones, but that one with Richard Attenborough as a, as a low level hood is, is really worth seeking out. And so was uh, the frightened city. If you can find it, it was a DVD from, I think anchor Bay at one point. Um, and, uh, we may have seen a, a version of that transfer when we watched it, but, um, it's, it's, you know, it's out there if you're willing to do a bit of digging. 
Yeah, and I uh, I really enjoyed what you said about you know that that organized crime element. For me, it yeah, obviously the Godfather is is the sort of is the is the Godfather of the genre. Yes, um, well. but <laughs> can we say that that the the Godfather is the Godfather? Uh, yeah, it's um, uh, I, I enjoyed the world building, if you want to call it that, the network of these hard men. Uh, you know, in some ways, it's also proto Scorsese. He's made a number of films about organized crime and uh, how it's established and expanded expanded by people who have like an entrepreneurial spirit in some respects. <laughs> yes. um, so yeah, I really, it's pretty great. So yeah, Frightened City from 1961, I think is is worth seeking out. And and yeah, it is available on uh, DVD uh, out there in the world. Um, now, another film we watched from Edgar Wright's list of films that inspired Last Night in Soho was Blood and Black Lace. This is maybe the only Italian horror in our list that we dipped into. It's from 1964 from uh, Mario Bava. And I haven't seen a lot of his pictures, but the production design... I mean, I feel like I've seen a lot of movies that Bava's films have influenced. Uh, you know, the gorgeous, ornate sets, the drapes, the high contrast of light and dark, the deep reds and purples, all these sort of lurid tones. And this, the way it's shot, where characters come in and out of the frame, and you're you're sometimes a little bit... Um, it's sometimes... It's ra- it feels rare that you're following, like, a single person, and this is an ensemble cast, so that, that also helps, you know, keep that vibe coming forward. Um, I was reminded of Peter Strickland's In Fabric, which I think would make a great double bill with Last Night in Soho. Uh, of course, the, um, you know, horror, fashion horror, you know. Oh, yeah, and this is a huge influence on that film, for sure. Yeah, and uh, anyway, the movie is a murder mystery, um, and that's, uh, yeah, Blood and Black Lace, and uh, one of the models at a Roman fashion house has been murdered uh, by a person in a featureless mask who wears a trench coat and a fedora uh, whoever it is looks a lot to my mind as a longtime comic fan of Steve Ditko's The Question which of course inspired Rorschach from The Watchmen Um, other models are terrified of course by this murder and as are many of the men who are hanging around fashionistas and the like um, and a dude who looks a lot like the Italian Peter Lorre uh, but <laughs> yeah. but then we discover the model, uh, the murdered uh, woman wrote a diary, and it may contain deadly secrets or secrets deadly to a lot of other people in the fashion house. So soon more bodies of beautiful models are piling up, and the question, the Italian question is to blame. <laughs> Just think of him as the question, uh, which is, is, you know, but who is the question? Um, the, the plot is revealed, and it gets more lurid with more Crosses and double crosses galore. Uh, yeah, I I found it uh, it, it uh, sort of you know the the soap opera dramatics to be quite entertaining overall, and and I thought the plot was pretty well uh, assembled. I really I did enjoy it. Yeah, everything's kind of dialed up to eleven in this film, and uh, and all the it's all the better for it in terms of just everything about it: production design, the the elaborate use of colored lighting, which is the Mario Bava trademark, because you know what cheaper special effect could there be than just a lot of gels and, and slapping them on on things just making it just making it look good with for the least amount of expense i mean he was the king of of really inventive and very cost effective special effects uh throughout his career and it's uh, you know from from use of mats and things like that to and props and and uh, hanging miniatures and 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 just ways to make to add production value to his films without uh, draining the budget, his, his films always made a profit and always came in on time and under budget. He was a you know it, he was a master craftsman, but also you know had a very uh, 
was very aware of the bottom line, I think, and somehow somehow was able to balance all these things over the course of his career. And this is, in some ways, this is his prototypical film. And this is probably the third time I've watched it. I feel like I've seen this film like many times over the years in different formats. Like I probably watched a VHS copy initially and then eventually a Laserdisc and now this uh, beautiful Blu-ray from Arrow Films. If you're going to watch it, that's the way to go. Get a hold of that because I think that transfer is just the it'll make your tv look as stunning as it'll ever look with the the technicolor just eye-popping visuals uh throughout this film and uh you know some sometimes if you if you watch a lot of giallos uh sometimes the plot isn't necessarily the most important uh item on, on the list uh that's being paid attention to and if you're trying to think well what about that person what happened to them and 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 not everything uh comes together but i find in this film the pieces fit together reasonably well and that the plot is fairly straightforward once you once you get you know towards the end and you know what's involved in terms of you know who's blackmailing who and why the diary is that is discovered early on is so important and 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 how each person kind of infects the next with with what they know the the knowledge is becomes a dangerous uh a dangerous thing for them as uh, the killer tries to eliminate all suspicion over the course of the the film and just kind of digs in worse and worse. And, and I, I, you know, I, I found it, it adds up pretty well for the most part, because I've, once you get into the seventies giallos and it's more about the shock and the, the, um, you know, elaborate set pieces and that kind of thing. And, and, and maybe less so about coherent storytelling. And, and at least here, it's, it seems fairly well grounded. Yeah, we had considered watching another one from the list, Inferno, which is from 1980, but we didn't quite make it there. Have you seen that before? Well, Inferno, that's a Cluzo film. It's more of a thriller. Um, uh, and it's a film that I don't think Cluzo finished. So it's basically, you know, he, he got like 75% of the way there. And it, but it's, it's very similar in that it uses elaborate color schemes, um, many of which I think are uh, mirrored in Last Night in Soho. And uh, so the, the story of kind of trying to reassemble this film from what Clouseau left behind is that's as much of a movie because there's a documentary with a Blu-ray that tells the story of how it was sort of rediscovered and reassembled. And that's as much of a story as the film itself. So maybe that's, maybe if we do like a lost films or films from beyond the grave sort of thing that we could look at that film in, in okay. that context. That sounds good to me. Um, okay. Well, we got another one on our list here that we want to discuss from 1965, The Collector. And this is William Wyler's film of the Jonathan Fowles novel. I read a Jonathan Fowles novel. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember what it is now. I'm going blank. I'm, I'm going down a little uh, narrative uh, cul-de-sac here. <laughs> so you read The Magus? Maybe? The Magus. That was it. Magus? Yes, yes, yes. Which I loved. I haven't read, the, I haven't read uh, this one, though. Um, but I, The Collector from 1965 stars Terrence Stamp and Samantha Eggers, where Stamp plays an awkward, bookish young man, Freddie, who likes to collect butterflies. And we meet him sort of, you know, out in the fields at first collecting butterflies. Uh, and now he stalks and abducts Eggers Miranda, taking her to a remote farmhouse and installing her in the basement, holding her captive. He's been watching her from a distance from a, for a long time and wants her to, in his words, get to know him. As she starts to piece together uh, when she sees his butterfly collection, She's been collected. It's 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 a you know maybe as as a uh, as a metaphor, it's a bit heavy-handed, but it's undeniably effective. Yeah. Oh, it's so creepy. <clears throat> and there's so much about this that was borrowed for Silence of the Lambs. Now, as I as I think about it, uh, you know that this is 
this character that Stan plays, you know, he's a dashing young man. He's very polite, but he's also remarkably and convincingly nerdy and needy and defensive and nasty. He's kind of like a proto-incel. Pretty much, yeah, with a dash of Norman Bates. Um, <laughs> yeah. In I mean, effect. it was decades before nerd culture, but I, I could sense that damaged sense of entitlement. It feels right on the money. Uh, there's parts of the film that do feel dated uh, in the direction and the style of it, but there is a lot here that make me feel pretty damn uncomfortable. Um yeah, yeah. So uh, what did you think of The Collector? <laughs> yeah, this is the second time I've seen The Collector. And, and yeah, the last half hour or so, just I get kind of squeamish even thinking about it just because it's uh, just because of the plight of Miranda's being held captive in her attempts to, to escape and and uh, just how Terrence Stamp doubles down on his creepiness and his insistence on uh, on keeping her uh, keeping her as hostage. And, and, and Stamp is amazing. Like he, he'd never shies away and here's, here's a guy who's kind of the ultimate of 60s cool um playing this completely uh demented nerdy uh kind of sad character uh with the, the greasy hair and he completely transforms himself uh in um as freddie and oddly enough um this film was a favorite of morrissey's i don't know if you do that that uh, from the smiths and oh yeah they uh, the more i learn about morrissey the less i like that guy <laughs> Well, in fact, he used a still from this film on uh, the cover of a single. It might have been What Difference Does It Make? Don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure if that's what it was. But but uh, they used it. And then Terrence Stamp uh, said that he didn't give permission for them to use his image on a single cover. And so the second pressing of the single, they had to substitute a photo of Morrissey in the same pose wearing the same clothes. So they basically just took out the picture of, of Terrence Stamp as Freddie in The Collector and put in uh, a picture of Morrissey basically done up to look exactly the same. And so you get the same sleeve with the two very similar looking photos. But uh, so I don't know, you know, if that means that he identified with Freddie a little bit in some way and this kind of lonely outsider character or, or what the story is there. But um, that uh, that's something to chew on for a little bit. But but it is it is a you know, a terrifying thriller. And, and Freddie feels like a very kind of real life sort of monster. Um, and, uh, the room, I guess, or, or room uh, is another film. Sure. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, kind of fits in. Brie Larson. Yeah. Along these, uh, lines and, um, not the room, but just a room. Mm-hmm. The room is a whole other story entirely about <laughs> yes. an obsessive weirdo. Uh, and you know, it seems like such an odd film for William Wyler to make. Cause here's a guy who, again, you know, started, working I think in the silent days and uh you know was was one of the top Hollywood directors of the 30s and 40s and here he is making this very kind of of its time 1960s thriller towards the end of his career and it just seems like such an odd film for him to make and of course all the interiors were all done in Los Angeles it turns out which is something I didn't know um until recently that they did the exteriors in in on London or you know surrounding uh, London and Kent locations, and then they switched to L.A. for all the uh, interior scenes on the sound stages. So which is but without somehow missing a beat, it doesn't feel like a divided movie in that sense. But uh, you know it it I just wonder what his mindset was in deciding to maybe he wanted to top Hitchcock with something as creepy as Psycho, and maybe that's what his mindset was. Um, and uh, you know, maybe he even surpassed it. Maybe it's, I think, I think in some ways, Freddie's even creepier than Norman Bates is in a lot of ways. Yeah, you're not wrong. 
uh, he is, I think. And uh, it is a potent and a frightening film. Uh, I was so glad to be able to finally see it. Uh, one thing I noticed, speaking of London locations, Freddie abducts Miranda in his little van in Hampstead in a very sort of recognizable little Hampstead lane. Um, and then the next shot, he's driving his van around Trafalgar Square, which makes no sense <laughs> if he's heading out to the countryside. <laughs> but, you know, of course, you can't you can't beat Trafalgar Square for as a recognizable London location. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because the shot of the van going around the square is almost a duplicate of a shot uh, from the next movie we're going to talk about in the next segment, D- Darling, where Diana drives Miles' convertible around the square at oh, high right. speed. It's just – and it's basically – I wonder if they set up the camera in the same location. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. And welcome back to our third and final segment of Lens Me Your Ears as we're looking at films from UK in the swinging 60s in connection with Last Night in Soho, the Edgar Wright thriller that uh, digs deep into that decade and into the filmmaking of that period. And it's an endlessly rewarding period uh, in terms of the types of drama. I mean, it, even if you only know A Hard Day's Night with uh, with the Beatles, I mean, that's, that's still a pretty great place to start because it's a wonderful film and it does sum up that era so well and uh, has uh, survived so so well into uh, into today in terms of just a purely entertaining film. But that's not one of the ones we're talking about. That's that's one you can go off and find on your own if you haven't seen it already. But something that really is of its time is John Schlesinger's Darling, um, starring Julie Christie, uh, at, almost in a continuation of her role in the last John Schlesinger film prior to this, Billy Liar, where she plays a, a, a girl from the North who um, becomes involved with Tom Courtney's uh, dreamer and um, wannabe comedy or writer or comedian. And, and here she's she's a young girl in London who um, gets the attention of the media and has this kind of very odd rise to fame and prominence uh, through uh, through the course of the, the men that she encounters over the, over the storyline. And it's... Um, it's it's a very compelling drama, a, a very sad drama in a lot of ways, uh, with some great moments for its for her and its stars, uh, Dirk Bogard and Lawrence Harvey, who is is quite wonderful here as as kind of a uh, sleazy executive kind of on the make, and she's sort of torn between these two men and then a third man, a, an Italian, uh, I guess, a count or a prince that we meet <laughs> towards the end of the film, and she's she's certainly uh, kind of looking out for herself and. And isn't necessarily protecting her own uh, emotions, her own personal life, uh, terribly well. And it's a great look at uh, at sort of mass media at the time, at uh, pop culture and paparazzi, and uh, the nature of fame. And and Julie Christie is is wonderful here, playing a not entirely likable character because it's uh, which which feels unusual for her because she's such a strong screen presence, and. Um, you know, she's she, you're instantly drawn to her, and I think Schlesinger uses those characters well, or uses those characteristics well in a in a in a very kind of different character for her. 
Yeah, it is very different. And this is my my thought about watching Darling was that it, I was struck by how it starts at this sort of carefree, playful vibe of a romantic comedy. Uh, and then it takes on this sharp, cynical edge. It may be one of the most cynical movies I've ever seen. It has a scathing look at middle and upper class Brits, the sort of bored, languid classes. Uh, and it, it, I guess the question is how judgmental it is uh, of the, you know, things like the acceptance or non-acceptance of homosexuality. It seems especially scathing of the upper-class perspective on race and identity. Seen from the remove of, you know, 56 years, I found it really entertaining, but I maybe, you know, it's, it is, it is, I guess, ostensibly a comedy, but it felt like it was kind of a shallow overview of, of some of the, you know, the issues of class of the day. Uh, and I, I did note, I went back and read some reviews of it, and there were a lot, especially British reviewers, who were absolutely intensely harsh on this, like basically said it was completely uh, not worth your time. Wow. Uh, and I wonder how, um, I mean, the film won Oscars, right? So so for Christie especially, so uh, I just, I wonder how much of that was maybe because it was right on the money in terms of how, <laughs> how it offended certain people. Uh, you know, I mean, it is about the commodity of beauty. It's about self-hatred. Um, I mean, there is an argument to be made that the whole thing sort of reeks of a certain kind of misogyny. It's critical of women, of means who make their own decisions no matter what. And that's what Christie's character is doing. But she seems entirely absent uh, self-awareness, even as she's looking back at her life, which, you know, the story is sort of told in in recollection as she seems to be giving an interview because uh, she's a, you know, a celebrity. There is a lot to enjoy about Darling, though. I mean, aside from the locations, which I very much enjoyed, uh, there there's a scene where Christy and Bogart are on a train and Christy touches Bogart's face and puts her fingers in his mouth waking him up as he's having a nap and that I thought was really erotic very sexy um, and later she's in a boardroom with Miles uh, after a party play, Miles played by Lawrence Harvey and she's wearing this incredible dress and she climbs up and walks along this enormous table basically trying to seduce him and it is it's astonishing how how, you know, just the, her, her presence. And she's like 23 at the time. Well, that that image was what, uh, when Criterion put this out, I think on Laserdisc, that's actually the image they went with was was, was uh, Julie Christie walking along the boardroom table. Uh, and it's, it is, it's such a powerful uh, look at, uh, you know, well, power, I guess, and, and, and how, how people have it and how they wield it in, in terms of... Um, you know, certainly political, economic, sexual power, and uh, the power dynamic between Christie and the the men in her life is is uh, certainly key to this film. Uh, I think it's just as hard on the male characters as it is on uh, on um, Christie's character, and uh, you know, it, it's it's still uh, still feels like a really revealing and and um, observant film even today like i feel like not a lot has changed uh in in the the dynamics of uh, relationships that's played out here Hmm, that's interesting yeah i it's funny though diana ends up alone and isolated in a miserable and miserable in an enormous house and she's actually uh she's she's actually known as princess diana at the end (laughs) yes that was was the first time they say that i'm like whoa I couldn't I couldn't help but be reminded of another film in cinemas now, which is Paolo, Paolo uh, Lorraine Spencer, which of course is a is a you know a bad time in the life of Princess Diana, the the more well known one. Uh, yeah, so so anyway, but uh, that's an interesting coincidence. I I did like Darling, and I would 
I would recommend it for people who are looking for, you know, want to chew over what it's really about and, and have like a rich conversation afterwards. I feel like it, it would lend itself to, to a great, you know, Cinepanians getting together and, uh, and discussing what it's all about. Oh, for sure. And, and, and of course, Schlesinger just goes from strength to strength. Uh, you know, within a couple of years, he's making uh, Midnight Cowboy, which would completely set the film industry on its ear. Uh, and you can see the roots of that film and it's take on uh, modern sexuality. You can see that uh, having its roots here in Darling, and it's it'd be great to watch those two films back to back. Yeah, all right, for sure. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Uh, now, we should talk about The Pleasure Girls from 1965, a film which I think in retrospect is probably fairly poorly named. I feel like the name of the film was brought in to just, you know, it's it feels like an exploitation uh, thriller or drama. It's written and directed by Jerry O'Hara, and uh, this entirely provocative title actual of a movie that isn't actually that provocative. If anything, I think this movie manifests some pretty conservative ideas. The, you know, the woman who gets pregnant and decides to have the baby but kicks the father to the curb, which I guess must have been maybe, – maybe it was 50 50- – progressive at the time. I don't know. Um, the idea that she's going to go it alone. Uh, then there's the woman who denies sex to someone who she's fallen in love with, uh, despite his interest, uh, but it secures his interest as a potential long-term partner, you know, those kinds of ideas. Uh, all that said, I really enjoyed the movie. I love the dialogue, the characters, the many Chelsea and South Kensington locations. Mm. It's it's about a group of young women living together at a Chelsea flat, a very nice one, actually, in retrospect. It takes place over a single weekend. Sally Feathers is played by Francesca Annis, who we recently saw in David Lynch's Dune yes. as Jessica. Um, and then there's also Angela is played by Annika Wills, and Marion is played by Rosemary Nichols. Uh, Sally is at the heart of the thing. She's just arrived from the country to go to, to modeling school, so in some ways very much like Last Night in Soho. Yeah, the proto-Eloise. Yes, think. indeed. Um, she meets Keith, who is a never younger Ian McShane. I didn't even know he was acting this young. Like, it's astonishing how young he looks. Um, they're very witty, and he wants to sleep with her, but she's holding out. And, and then Marion... Marion, we discover, is pregnant, and the father is Prinny, played by Mark Eden, and he's a real louse who likes to gamble and runs afoul of some very bad men. And then there's Klaus Kinski, of all people. <laughs> what a what a heartthrob. Yeah, he is it's here. <laughs> so weird to see him again, very young. He plays Nico, a married slumlord who dates one of the more mercenary of the women in this uh, in this sort of little group, uh, D, played by Susanna Lee. Uh, Nico feels like a James Bond villain. I mean, his company name is even Drax. Did you notice that? It's like, wait, where have I heard that name before? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then there's Patty, played by Tony Tanner, who is deeply suggested and later confirmed as one of the, as a gay man. Ooh, you know, scandalous. He lives in the same building and makes tea and takes care of the ladies upstairs. And there is a very Henry Mancini-esque score by Malcolm Lockyer, which uh, is a lot of fun. Yeah, this was a movie which I just got swept up in. I thought it was so well-written and and so charming, even while I was a little bit – I groused a little bit about some of the politics. I was like, this is just – I really – I just love this movie. Yeah, Jerry O'Hara is an interesting guy. He basically – you know, he would work on – Major films like Exodus and, and and big productions, Tom Jones and The Cardinal for Otto Preminger, um, and he he worked as an assistant director on on large scale you know British and Hollywood productions, and then between those assignments, he'd make these kind of 
gritty, low-budget uh, dramas of, of varying degrees of interest. And this might be the best of, of them, but, uh, but he kind of was really interested in making these kinds of films on his own when he wasn't on the set of, of some glamorous international uh, production. And you know, I, I feel like maybe he brings some of the smarts from working on those kinds of films here in terms of just getting the most out of his cast and, and, and helping them craft a, a bunch of really in, interesting characters. I think that's, uh, that's why this film works so well is because everybody kind of invests their characters with some really interesting personal traits and quirks. And, and, uh, and, and as we move from story, because it juggles a lot, like, you know, three, three or four different storylines are being handled here and yet it never gets confusing. And, and we're fully invested in, in all the characters, good or bad. And, and I, th- I think that's a big part of the film's charm and that it does, uh, does pay attention to all those, uh, you know, character highlights throughout the film. Absolutely. And it happens, it takes place all over the course of a single weekend, which I also really liked. I mean, it's, it's hard not to, uh, to feel engaged and uh, buy a story that has such a restricted time frame, though it did make me wonder about, uh, Sally and, uh, uh, you know, and, and her, her, her claiming to be in love with, um, uh, with Ian McShane's character, you know, I mean, talking about love after two days, at a certain point, I felt like one of them should say, yeah, but we've only known each other for two days. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, um, so we should, before we wrap up here on Lens Me Your Ears for this episode, looking back at films from the 60s, uh, many thanks again to Edgar Wright to Kia, to suggest all these movies that helped inspire his film Last Night in Soho. Um, we need to talk about Repulsion. Um, this is a film by, is the first film, uh, in English, I believe, or did he make a feature films previous to this? Uh, I think this was his first English film. I, I, I guess this is, uh, right after Knife in the Water. Oh, there you go. And then before maybe Cul-de-Sac. I'm not sure the chronology off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah. Um, anyway, French, uh, Polish filmmaker, Roman Polanski. Um, it's, you know, it's a film of a deeply weird resonance all these years later, given Polanski's international reputation as a rapist, having avoided trial for statutory rape and fleeing the United States. Here he's got a story of a young woman who it's suggested was traumatized by abuse in her childhood and makes her repulsed by the idea of intimacy. The irony here is blinding. Uh, but the film is also my first time watching it is terrifying. Uh, and it is in shot in gorgeous black and white in and around South Kensington. Uh, all the locations are within like a few steps of each other all around South Kensington Station. Uh, stars a very young Catherine Deneuve as Carol, a Belgian woman living in London and working at a spa as a manicurist. Um, and... Uh, Yeah, Carol lives with her sister Helen, and Helen's boyfriend Michael visits frequently. It's basically an examination of Carol's fragile mental state and how it crumbles with deeply violent consequences. The sound design is incredibly immersive. When she's inside this apartment by herself, the sounds that seep in, ticking clocks and bells and telephones and elevators, airplanes and barking dogs... The sound of Helen and Michael having sex, she's frightened of cracks in the sidewalk, and she begins to hallucinate cracks in the walls of the apartment when her sister goes away. It also has a terrific score, kind of jazzy and cosmopolitan, but quickly morphing into something more insistent with uh, martial drums. Um, yeah, I, uh, it, it, this, was a, this was one of the more frightening films I've seen in a long time. Yeah, this this film really does make your skin crawl. <laughs> Not just because Polanski directed it, but because it just the the way it portrays her psyche coming to pieces over the course of the film, and you can see how Edgar Wright may have leaned on some of that uh, as Eloise uh, 
ramps up her anxiety and her trauma over the course of last night in Soho, oddly enough. Like, you can totally see this as the model for how he wanted her to develop. Although, by the end of that film, you know, Eloise, you know, we don't want her to go completely to pieces like Catherine Deneuve does here. And, uh, but I feel there's definitely parallels. And I, you know, he probably in, instructed, uh, um, Thomason to, to, to watch, to watch this film in preparation for that. Uh, I, I feel like maybe this delves a little more deeply into the nature of, of psyche and, and, and how it uh, can collapse. I think maybe gives it more serious attention than last night. And Soho does for, for Eloise, but, uh, you know, it, it is, a a pretty compelling and incisive portrait of, of, I, you know, presumably schizophrenia or, or or something along those lines happening to uh, to her character, and how no one seems to see the signs or help help her get help or anything like that. You know, it 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 seems like a like almost like a warning uh, a warning sign of some sort. Yeah, it is a uh, it is is a terrifying film. I, I won't. Uh, I, I just I was gripped by it right from the get go, thanks to the cinematography and those sound design, as I mentioned. And uh, yeah, and I do feel like it, it is it is. I mean, realistic. I, I'm I, I'm I caution to use that word to describe well, it. But. Yeah, not realistic, but it, but it's because we're seeing a lot of it from from Carol's point of view. So it's this sort of from this fractured psyche i guess and and mm. it, and it uh, it doesn't stint on portraying that in a way that must have seemed pretty shocking at the time yeah um and it's available here in canada on ctv where i watched it complete with ads for montana's kit kat <laughs> telus old navy and canadian tire and uh you know i really i, I can't recommend people watch it while, with while it's interview which is interrupted by ads uh if you can find it on dvd or blu-ray that's the way to go That wraps up this week's episode of Lens Me Your Ears here on CKDU and the Village Soundcast Network. If you can, check out Last Night in Soho. I definitely recommend seeing it in a theater just for its, uh, its film craft, its use of color, its attention to detail. All that stuff looks so much better on the big screen. And if you can find Edgar Wright's article uh, listing his 25 uh, films that influenced his, uh, his story, then I, I highly recommend checking that out and looking for more of those films as well. My name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm Karsten Knox, and my Twitter handle is named after my film blog, Flaw on the Iris. Flaw on the Iris is on halifaxbloggers.ca. And of course, you can find Lensby Rears on Facebook. We have a Facebook page where you can see posts about the film and uh, communicate with us, or through Twitter through the handle at Lends Me Your Ears, of course. And once again, thanks to CKDU 88.1 FM for the use of the production facilities and airing us every other Tuesday at 5 p.m. That's right, we have a new time on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. And the Village Soundcast Network for putting the final production touches on the, the show and getting it out there onto your favorite podcast platforms. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.
This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.